Welcome to the Going Bananas show, Albert Lucas. It's uh, it's too easy to say uh, juggler and entertainer and performer because there's so many other facets to your life. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to see you all, buddy. Yeah, uh, well, it's a big pleasure for me. I think we're friends for 25 years or more. And uh, Quarter century, absolutely. Yeah. So... How 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 are you doing? Where where are you where where are you right now? Well, I'm uh, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. As you know, we played a lot of golf rounds here, but it's a little rainy. I've got a uh, dress rehearsal for Dolly Parton's Pirate Voyage. We open in a few days, so your timing is perfect. That's great. You're open. Uh, you're opening up before us here. Uh... I'm just sitting in this studio. I've been sitting here. All I've got is uh, they've given me some new plants. And that's all. I see. see. We're just waiting. We're absolutely ready for everybody. But uh, still waiting for the authorization for us to uh, open and uh, open the gates. Well, here in South Carolina, Pirate's Voyage came after bowling alleys. They opened the bowling alleys and then they opened Pirate Voyage. Wow. Now, you can't complain. Uh, you know, we, we follow the uh, trade papers working for Dolly Parton. She has her amusement parks. And uh, congratulations are in order. Seven years, number one park in the world internationally. Congratulations. You and your team have a lot. Uh, wow. That's well, we're, uh, incredible. That's we're, one. We're grateful. We're grateful from uh, the, the, the loyalty of our guest. And uh, we, we just keep earning, er, working really hard to try and earn their trust. Well, you realize it was seven in a row. That's one more world title than uh, Michael Jordan secured in his career. Um, I'm happy about that. I'm fully aware and quite happy. <laughs> so, Albert, Albert, tell me, tell me you've had a, a, an amazingly rewarding career, illustrious career, Absolutely, at the, the the highest level, for for I don't I, I don't even know whether you want me. Will it embarrass you if I say for how many years you've been at the very highest level? Well, uh, you're very kind, and it's the type of accolades from my friends that I appreciate the most. Uh, the behind the scenes, you know how hard I worked, and of course, how lucky I was to have such a wonderful father who was my coach. And not only did he teach me about this wonderful uh, creative art show business, but, you know, he taught me about hunting and fishing. He made sure I got a good education, made sure I went to public school to the sixth grade. But as a coach, uh, teaching me to juggle, uh, it was some of the best memories of, uh, of my life. And, and when I get older, I realize how lucky, how lucky it was. And for all of us who've had a good coach, I know your mom was an incredible influence in your life, Ian. Makes a difference, doesn't it? Absolutely, but um, but just give give me a brief uh, an understanding of how it started because I know that your father was a very high level acrobat, one of the best one of the best in the world. But that's not necessarily juggling. I remember you telling me a story no. many years ago that he, uh, uh, if I, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think that he tested your genetics to know exactly what size body structure you would have so that when he when he gave you the technique it would be the best technique for what size you would eventually be you're absolutely correct uh, my dad was a big believer in science 
He was a well-read man. Uh, although he did not go to college, he read uh, prolifically. And he did. He took science at that point, and he measured my femur bone as a child. And they knew exactly, pretty close, that I was going to hit my height I am now, which is six foot tall. I hit this height at about 15 years old. So my dad's love of juggling as an acrobat with the Los Gatos Trio, he worked with the best jugglers of this incredible era. Not only the Francis Bruns and the Rudy Cardenases, but also the Surge Flash, uh, Trutzi, Bobby May. Uh, these are incredible. These are our forebearers that opened up so many doors that I was able to go through and so grateful in my career. But they all saw how much he loved juggling and they wanted to be an acrobat, you know, it was an amazing uh, sort of symbiotic relationship. Well, yeah, but um, your father wasn't a juggler. No, no, he just loved juggling. And uh, what attracted him to him, he was very good with mathematics. In fact, later on when he retired and was helping me start my career, he went to what we used to call night school in Los Angeles <laughs> and he got his accountancy certification. But the reason for that was he could see patterns in juggling. He saw mathematical patterns in eight, nine objects, alternating synchronous, synchronous. And uh, that proved to be very interesting because years later I got to meet and work with a uh, famed mathematician, Claude Shannon from MIT, the founder of uh, the information theory. He's the guy that took paper and turned it into digital. And uh, oddly enough, he understood juggling in the same patterning as my dad did, but from two, two ends of the educational spectrum. Is this something like uh, Bryson DeChambeau's doing with the golf? Yes, uh, and ultimately you develop a system. In other words, that my dad based my height, and he said to be a sort of South American style with the silver clubs doing fast movements and going like this was just not... It'd be like taking a six foot tall guy and putting him into gymnastics, right? So, but trying but, to do the Iron Cross is just not the same if you're five five versus six foot. So he taught me the very uh, sort of elegant style of juggling. But Albert, that um, your 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 father used physics, used mathematics, but then that doesn't mean uh, to create create somebody who is so talented as yourself. I mean, I'm, I think, uh, I mean, you, you tell me better, but uh, at three years old, you were juggling three bulls. You know, that's, that's got to come from, uh, from, from yourself. Well, uh, you have to understand, my dad never yelled at me for juggling. My dad never struck me for juggling. Uh, through my career when I was younger and I would make mistakes like on a big opening night, like my first opening night with the ice capades was not my finest hour. My dad was really cool. He'd come back and he'd say, do you know what happened? I go, yeah, I, I got ahead of the music, dad. And so I slowed up to let the music catch me. And he goes, here's the thing. Let the musical conductor do his job. He'll catch you. You do your job. Now, here's the thing about life. Now, You'll see it again. That's in the old days when it was all live, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so then he'd go like this. He'd go, okay, what do you want to do? i go, yeah, let's go throw, let's go throw the ball. Let's, let's play. He taught me to play baseball. Or if there was some good fishing around, we'd go fishing. He would drop it like that. So there was never this overemphasis on success or failure. It was learning to be a good profession and learning the system of being a professional. But then what gave you the, um, I mean, three balls at uh, three years old, four, 
four bulls at four years old, five bulls at five years old, then uh, obviously, as Albert Lucas does, six bulls at six years old. It's just, it's, it's beyond just normally being talented. It's just super talented. You know, I was a good, I, I was a good student, meaning I would listen, I would follow instructions. Uh, I'm coachable, as many coaches have said to me uh, when I was learning to fly an aircraft. My instructor said, you're not the best student I ever had, but uh, you, you listen and do exactly what I told you. See, I never tell anybody I'm a juggler because my learning curve is I'm like below average. And then if I stay with it and then all of a sudden the skill shows up, but you don't know where in the curve my skill is going to show up. Yeah, but if I... my flight instructor is here, she would tell you that we were on approach here to Myrtle Beach. And just as uh, just as I took my heading and we were following procedure for landing, we had an interior cockpit fire. And I'm not instrument rating, but the cockpit filled with smoke. The fire was on her side of the aircraft. It was electrical. And I had command of the aircraft. And so I, I took a mental picture of the runway, and then I went right to instruments, and I landed the air, airplane without, without actually seeing the runway. And she said, well, I guess you are a great juggler because that was almost impossible for a new student to do. So it's stuff like that that shows up. But when you can do 14 rings, when you can do 12 rings, the mental calculation, the effort it takes with eye-hand coordination, your ability to capture in a hundredth of a second a scene in front of you, it's all in there. But, you know, if I'm having, if I'm having lunch with you, I'll probably knock over my milk or Coca-Cola, you know, I'd might, probably spill it. You might forget to pay the bill. <laughs> That's why well, yeah. Yeah, but, Al, but Albert. <laughs> hey, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to do something. I was checking out your timepiece, and, uh, you know, we're uh, horology. You and I love it, so let's do a watch check. I got my very first watch from 1972. I bought with my own money. I was 12 years old. It's a Seiko Bellomatic. Little alarm watch. What are you sporting today? Uh, I'm, I'm a James Bond Omega fan. I'm a James, I'm a James Bond fan. Uh, all my life, a James Bond. Got a fan. little chrono. Haven't haven't got the car, but uh, I, I'm a I, I follow James Bond in that. But but Albert, well, I want to thank uh, you. Know, what what you talk sure. about? You 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 talk about you took a mental picture. Um, do you, I know you? I know you not only as a performer, not only as an athlete, but I know you as, as somebody who has a huge interest in many different disciplines or interest in whether it's finance, whether it's politics, whether it's, uh, whether it's watches or something like this. And, and, and I've always wondered, and I don't think I've ever asked you the question in uh, 25 years of knowing you, do you have a photographic memory? I do not. My older brother, uh, he started out as a juggler, Douglas. He had a photographic memory. And uh, by 14 years of age, he was ready for college. And of course, my dad, being very progressive in his thinking, got him tested and he went right off to medical school. And he's been a doctor of neurology and microsurgery uh, for the past 30 years. And uh, he's got that kind of memory. I'm a student that studies a subject. And if I really love it, right? Then something shows up. The creative side shows up. Yeah, but this all gets back to dad. You know, my dad made sure I got an education. Uh, I remember when, when he turned 80, I sent him the entire Encyclopedia Britannica on DVDs, right? Little envelope, right? Not very many. 
because he used to carry two suitcases of the Encyclopedia Britannica books on the road with me so that I could research things all the time. Plus, you know, he read the classics to me. Uh, Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the, uh, the Roman Empire, I believe it was a seven or nine volume set. It was, it, was a little, it was a rough read. But he read all the great stories, uh, the Greek classics that were just fabulous. Uh, whenever we went anywhere in the world, he taught me about architecture. Engineering was really something that I loved. How did that bridge stay up? You know, how did they lay the cable across the Atlantic? But I don't you think know, I've ever... great things, and my dad always encouraged that outside of being a performer. I don't think I've ever met anyone in my life who is so attentive and retains so much information on many different subjects. And that you're so thoughtful <laughs> on, on somebody. Somebody will tell you a story. You will remember that story. And you'll think about it. And I know, I know you as a person that really cares about people. You get into people and you really care for them. And you, you've always been more than generous in, in, in anything. Whether it's in help. Whether I, I've seen you do the nicest little things where you just help somebody, even if it's in a restaurant or something like that. You're, you're, but you're uh, amazingly attentive. And I just, and I always wondered when I've asked you uh, different, when we've talked about sports, we sat in a dressing room for two years together. I, I think I was a baseball aficionado uh, all those years ago because you told me every single part of the history, every detail, totally interesting, enthralling. Enthralling, and I just think I, I just thought maybe he does maybe he just retains everything either he hears or he reads, and it's more like a photographic memory. It's uh, you know my dad, and I hate I don't want to I don't want to go back on to my dad a lot, but I do I do want you to for your readers and all that is that I am so thankful. The older I get, I'm so thankful because he encouraged this curiosity. So. In my career as a performer, we opened the Omni in Atlanta, right? So future president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, was governor. And Hank Williams, uh, uh, Hank Aaron, I'm sorry. Uh, Hank Aaron was there, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, who recently passed away. And guess what? He came up to me and says, you know, I could juggle three balls. And this is something that happened to me throughout my life. Uh, you know, Dr. J. Uh, I used, he used to be one of the only NBA players that would invite me back into the dressing room. And then I understood why. He was trying to get from four balls of socks to five balls of socks. Because he would, to pass the boredom, this is back in the uh, analog days before the digital, he practiced his juggling. Uh, Jimmy Connors, Bjorn Borg, those guys all juggle. Even Federer, if you go back to uh, some of his early interviews, he was actually in a circus school. And he learned to juggle uh, five balls. Well, he's a big, big. So, uh, I mean, big star around yeah. the world, and and uh, a local big star. He's only uh, he's only from city about eighty kilometers from here. So, yeah, and you know, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to answer your question in a real fun way, in the sense that I always was excited about life. I, I my dad taught me to not fear mistakes, right? But don't be wasteful. So in other words, he would support any hobby, and I think you, I think you can relate to this. But it couldn't be frivolous, couldn't be a dalliance, right? So he made sure that if something interests me, photography, then I pursued it. I got a good camera lens, but I had to know about the lens, the f-stops, the apertures, the speeds, the capability. 
you know, the dream camera. I learned that Leica was the most incredible lens maker in the world. Uh, but my first camera was a Minolta because that's what I could afford. I had to always pay a little bit towards these things. And then he would augment the, uh, the rest, the remainder. So it was really cool, Ian, that uh, when I wanted to learn to play tennis, I, I got he got me the greatest lessons as long as uh, as long as I. Uh, I've played tennis you know, I with you. The time and then later. You kicked my butt, so uh, so yeah. I won't, we won't, let's not talk about tennis. Yeah, I love it, but uh, yeah. Well, but Albert, going back, going back, you're you're a juggler at three years old, four years old, five years old. You're getting better and better and better. Um, what was? What was the interest? What was the, the motivation for your father? Was he trying to make you a great artist in a show, have a career in entertainment? But there was a big drive to break world records as well. And that's, that's sort of uh, uh, a different motivation. Uh, that one, being a great performer, being flexible, uh, as, as eventually that you uh, will get to that later about your flexibility on which surfaces on uh, you know to maintain your career but what was the drive to not only be a great juggler but a great performer but then also to establish world records and really get into uh, a, a sort of dual parallel uh, uh, search for uh, per perfection well uh, you see those uh, the old school guys Ian they had it wired in, meaning they knew how tough traveling was, right? They knew that when you're into a theater, the lighting may not be what you like, okay? The stage may not even be even. Heck, you didn't even know what you were going to follow in a production, right? You didn't know if you had a cold or whether you had uh, family troubles uh, or uh, any of that nature. So what you did was, say maybe you did like Francis Brown, you did eight or nine rings in performance. Guess what? Francis could do 10 or 11 rings off. So when they went on stage, they tended to use about 80% and they left that little bit of reserve just for the bad lighting, just for the off day, for being sore, for the traveling. So what happened was with when I, when I went to the ice with Ice Capades and I started performing, I started doing eight rings and nine rings in my performance, I started doing more off the ice, more off the stage. And then um, the explosion of the Guinness Book of World Records in the 80s in the United States, they approached me and that's how I started a long friendship with Norris McWhorter and uh, uh, Sterling Publishing. Uh, and it was just, they would, they would come up, they say, Albert, uh, here's the Soviets, this is what they're doing. Uh, Ignatov is up to 11. I said, okay, let's do 12. And then the hotel, I was at the Hacienda in Las Vegas at the time performing Fire and Ice. And the, then, of course, as you know, you always try to bring good value to your employer. So setting a world record and you're performing nightly at the Hacienda was, was really cool. Although I didn't look at them as world records, per se. It was more like I moved the needle forward and was waiting to hand the baton off to the next. So, so I mean, you're the youngest ever performer on The Ed Sullivan Show. And this was when a TV show or a, uh, a, an entertainment show was more than more than prime time. The Ed Sullivan Show was most certainly the show that the whole of America watched all the time. And you are the youngest ever performer to be on this. I'm going to show. I'm going to show your video. But but I just wanted. To, uh, I want to from a from a, a great child juggler. How did you become? 
famous enough. I know, I know your father had performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, but how, how, how did that happen that you got, got on to be uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, which was, uh, you know, you can't, really, you can't really liken that to anything now because now we've got, I don't know, 200 channels or something. You've got every type of social media device that you can watch things. But then when you're on basically the one show that everybody would gather around the family uh, and in the living room, let's watch the Ed Sullivan show. And then you're there. I don't know what the ratings were at that time, but then maybe you can't compare that to now. But how did they say, hey, we want this, uh, we want this kid on the show? Where, how did they get to know about you? Well, the, this is where the competition side of things played uh, in 1970, I won the International Jugglers Association. They held their world championship in Los Angeles. And I juggled seven rings for, I think, 51 seconds. And uh, got a lot of coverage. And it just so happened, Los Angeles, that's Hollywood. Uh, uh, one of the producers from Ed Sullivan was out there. He saw, he saw the uh, newspaper article and uh, got the invitation. Now, I was also performing with Liberace at that time. You were already really performing with Liberace. Perform yeah, just started his U.S. Uh, US tour. So uh, we were getting ready to go all across the United States, Canada. Then we were going to go internationally to uh, Australia and uh, over to Europe. And uh, so the Ed Sullivan people called. And that's how I got on. And you're right about the Ed Sullivan show. If you, if you were great on Sunday night, you had offers. Can you believe it? They would telegram them in to the Ed Sullivan production office on Monday morning, which is how I got the Tropicana offer, by the way, and Las Vegas for the Forty Bajera. But how yeah. did you get? How did you get? It's in, amazing. Because uh, Liberace, um, he was a megastar all around the world. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in America, but uh, in England, we knew Liberace uh, as one of our own huge star. And, and you're on a two-year uh, how a two-year tour with him. How old were you then? I was ten years old. See, when I was born, this show you how the world works. It might indeed be a simulation. I'm not sure, and we'll have to talk about that sometime. But when I was born in London, England, May 11th, 1960, the Los Gatos Trio with my dad were performing at the London Palladium with Liberace. In fact, it was Liberace who told my dad that he had a son because my dad kept calling the hospital. I was, I was born in Charing Cross Hospital. And finally, the nurse calls back and says, look, would you please tell Mr. Marrero, my full name is Albert Lucas Marrero, that he has a son and he's healthy and his wife is doing fine. Because he kept calling. He was so excited. So when I won the championship... It was about the same time that Liberace had discovered Dad was in Los, Los Angeles and asked him what he was doing at Los Gatos. And they said, well, we're getting ready to go out on tour. And the championships were happening just before. And then I won the championship and I was already signed to do the tour. Did you, did you perform any, in any shows with, with Los Gatos? No, no. Uh, Dad, uh, Dad retired uh, to help me get my career going. Which, which is another part of my life uh, 
if you had known me as a younger man, you might say that, uh, you know, I was motivated by a bit of uh, uh, aggressiveness to succeed or I was in a hurry to succeed. And you would be right to say that, but I would ask for your understanding now to realize, and it wasn't until my dad passed, that I knew how much my dad had given up to give me a career. Because when I was a boy growing up in Los Angeles, all these famous people would come in to town and dad would have lunch with them. And I would go. I mean, you're talking about some incredible people, uh, you know, Debbie Reynolds, uh, Danny Kay, uh, Milton Berle, all the great names. There's so many. I can't. Sammy Davis Jr. loved dad because dad, uh, dad worked with uh, Sammy Davis and his family in vaudeville. A lot of people don't realize Sammy Davis' family was all in vaudeville. So was Debbie Reynolds' family. And uh, Alan King, the famous comedian. Uh, Bill Moore, the, the, the famous presenter and producer out of New York. Uh, they all knew my dad. So I knew how much he'd given up to start my career. Now, my parents unfortunately divorced when I was three. And my mom so graciously sacrificed uh, raising me. She said, You're, you know, your dad, you need to be with your dad. You need to be with your dad. The way he loves you. I just, and so she sacrificed, you know, uh, her time with me and let my dad raise So I was always chased by this shadow, Ian, of, of realizing how much was sacrificed to give me a career. So I, my pursuit of excellence was really that I, I felt like every month I would write this check on a mortgage that I, that I still owed. It was only until after I, my dad died that I realized that he had long retired that debt and quietly put the title in my pocket because all he cared was that I was a good professional and a successful professional. That's it. And I was respected in the, in, in the performing arts community. I thought I had to keep going, but I didn't. So we've got, these, uh, we've got this young kid, 10 years old, working in Las Vegas. I mean, this, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, well, it, I mean, this is Vegas when really Vegas was Vegas, right? I mean, just all, uh, must oh be, goodness. it must be just nuts. I mean, uh, Elvis was around uh, at the same time, no? He was. In fact, I have an Elvis story for you. But to address the first part of what you're talking about, yeah. I mean, Howard Hughes was staying at the Sands. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Rat Pack were coming in out of town. All the big names were there. People dressed. Ian, as you know, I pride myself on on, uh, on, on dressing uh, appropriately, of course. But the town was just glamour everywhere. And I was part of one of the famous, the most famous, one of the most glamorous shows was the Folie Bergere at the Tropicana, which was what happened when I performed in the Ed Sullivan show. I got the Follies contract and I left Liberace. That's where I went to. And not only did I go into the Folie Bergere, I followed the great Francis Brunn. And he was so magnanimous. He was, to me, as a child. I trained with him. I practiced with him. And, you know, looking at this young kid coming up, you're kind of thinking, you know, is this a future competitor? But he had this saying where he said to me, he says, Albert, he says, as great as Francis Brent is, I can only perform at one place at one time. Yeah. And actually, and it's, always it's, room it's good for, for his good business juggler. as well. It's good for his business because yeah. the, every time that someone's seen you, uh, 
they are they are wowed by not just your performance, but they fall in love with juggling. And Francis yeah. Broom would 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 all would be happy about that because you're an exponent oh, yeah. of he your was, of your art. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I really appreciated uh, the skill set because my dad. He didn't want me to see other jugglers so I could develop my own style. So I didn't really start interacting until I was about 10, which was really great because I could develop my own style. And uh, you could see some some of it as a kid on the Ed Sullivan footage. It's kind of funny how I bowed and how I addressed the audience. Uh, and then growing into a teenager, that's always a difficult time for a performing artist. And I made that transition. Uh, and that's, How does uh, that work out, growing into really... a teenager when you're working when you're working uh, on a stage in Las Vegas where uh, I guess everything happened. What, what do they say? What, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But in the 70s, I think that was probably more so true than now, no? Well, it was, but uh, people conducted themselves. They purported themselves with uh, dignity and understanding. Uh, when I was at the Tropicana, there was a way that I came in. Uh, there was a way I went to the dressing room, the, my times that I was allowed on the stage and the times I was not. And then when I went out to preset, when I performed, how I exit. And uh, so it was very well regulated. There was, I saw, I don't believe I saw any nudity backstage at all, even though that was out front to the paying customers. Uh, I never saw any of it backstage. The Elvis story you were gonna say. Well, years later, uh, when I was performing, uh, I received uh, an invitation to attend uh, the the yearly awards in Las Vegas. And Elvis had made his comeback, and uh, just before the Entertainer of the Year is Variety Act of the Year. And of course, Francis had won it, Rudy Cardenas had won it, all these people. And I didn't know whether or not I would win. But sure enough, I won. And, you know, I'm like, wow, this is great. So I go up there, and they give you a little, little uh, silver top hat, right? And then I'm on the dais. In fact, in fact, I found it the other day. I think I got it over there. I, I, I thought I lost it. Hold on. Let me. Beautiful. Yeah, I thought I lost it. So anyway, I don't think you lose anything, Elvis. Albert. You've got, you're you're the king of memorabilia. Well, the truth is, I think I'm losing my hair. I think it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so a question I don't know of if money. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, Elvis wins Entertainer of the Year. So, I'm heading out the back of the kitchen because I got to go do the show at the Trop, the, right? It's in between shows. And I bump into Elvis. And he goes, Hey, kid, you're not going to juggle that hat, are you? <laughs> and I go, No. And he says, Congratulations. I don't think I've ever seen anyone like that small ever win win Variety Act of the Year. It was really it was really funny. He had a sense of humor. I would love to have yeah. that story, Elvis. Elvis, Elvis asking me a question. God, fantastic. Well, now you talked about old Vegas, okay? I saw a lot of the great performers in Las Vegas. When we, when my dad and I went to see Elvis, something happened that I that I never seen before. The music starts. He walks on stage. Everybody stands up. I've never seen that. They stand, they stood and they cheered him and they stay stood, on, they stayed like that 
until he even went to a slow section. And he's telling people to sit down, sit down. And, and they would sit down. And then when he got it cooking again, they'd all stand up. I'd never seen this, Ian. I, I, the energy in the room, I never, I had, I had never seen it. And I still haven't seen it to this day. Come close. A couple have come close. Michael Jackson was like that. Yeah. But um, so Albert, so so you're you're in Vegas. You're you're traveling. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard when you're when you're highlighting. Your name is up on the billboard with Liberace. You're at the MGM Grand, the Jubilee. I mean, I'm saying sort of, I'm saying words or names of shows which will last forever. The names. So, um, if I understand it um, from our talks, our personal uh, uh, talks that uh, your father sort of influenced you. Um, you know, you're a child star, you're a mega star, uh, already 10 years old, but you're, gonna, you're, you're going to change, you're gonna get older, so you wanna change the medium. And then, and then he advised you, if I'm correct, to uh, learn how to ice skate. Yeah, uh, a mutual contact of ours. It's, it's just amazing how the world works. Uh, Bob Turk came to see me perform in Las Vegas. And Bob knew my dad because when he was in the chorus learning adagio, he would go to my dad to ask, how do you lift, what is the proper technique for lifting a girl and, and, and the basic of lifting? And so my dad showed him. Later, Bob became the head uh, producer for all shows of Ice Capades and the Lido in Paris, whom you worked for for many years as well. And uh, so because Bob of, said, well, but Albert, because of you, I worked at the Lido. What? I don't know whether you remember. I mean, I, I don't want to make this about me, but a very long time ago, I was on tour. Uh, a tour got canceled. I was in the middle of nowhere. You had given me uh, a little device which you could Velcro to a payphone to sign on to the Internet. because it was in the in the in these days. I signed on, Coupling uh, device. the show that I was in closed down, and I was in the middle of nowhere, no job, and then I connected on the internet with you, and you sent me a message, the leader were trying to contact you, and I was in France at the time, uh, my job had fallen through because uh, somebody got injured, and, and, and it was your message that uh, said, Go and uh, go and speak to the Lido, and that's why I made contact with them, and that's why I signed a contract and stayed there 13 years. Had I not you not given me that little Velcro little heads handset thing, which Velcroed to a payphone, I uh, I probably wouldn't have had the career that I had. So uh, that this gives me the opportunity wow. to. Uh, I certainly don't forget it. I, I should thank you for that. But back to you. <sighs> Bob Turk. Wow, that's uh, Bob Turk. Yeah. Bob Turk. Bob Turk. Yeah. So uh, Bob said to my dad, "Well, you know, if he could ice skate, there might be a place for him in ice capades." So guess who was at the ice rink the next day? Uh, Ronnie Robertson, the famed uh, figure skater from years gone by, and then the hardest training of my life took over, learning to move on on figure skates. Now I could do. I could basically skate as a recreation, but now I had to get serious. And so the hardest training, the hardest training of, of my life, uh, of just the brutality of dropping everything, throwing it too far forward, throwing it behind me. Oh my God, it was brutal. 
And uh, I remember, I remember the worst day. Ronnie came out. Ronnie Robinson came out to see my dad, and he, he told my dad, he said, um, "This he he had a really bad day, and I'm not sure he's going to be able to master the formula of movement and juggling." So. My dad said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to go to the beach. He says, great, I want to go to the beach. So we went to Santa Monica, you know, Venice Beach, where I'd spent so much time with my dad as a kid, grew up in Hollywood, California, went to school out there. And then he said, what do you want to do now? I said, let's go to a ball game. We went to a Dodger baseball game. And David, you know, my younger brother, and we were a family, dad had remarried by that time. And and then he'd go, what do you want to do? And he just kept doing this every day. So after about six or seven days, he asked me, he says, what do you want to do? And uh, I said, I want to go back to the ice rink. And I want to get this. Because for the first time, this was me. This was all me. He couldn't help me. He couldn't be there. He couldn't tell me in the precise nature it took to move and juggle. And uh, I went back. That day I got it, I got it. And I could move and turn while I was moving, Mohawk turns and adjust and throw things in front of me, whatever direction, forward, backward, I wanted to do, whatever prop, I got the formula in and it was mine. Well, I've performed in a show Excuse with me. you in Aruba, Aruba where I remember <laughs> on opening nights, you came out on ice and we were, and it was some, some live, tornado and I remember you throwing the rings up and they don't even land back on the ice <laughs> that that's true yeah that's uh I had to go to plan B I went to plan B I think right after that yeah so Albert as a young guy you know I, I because because people people you know when they look at Vegas you think the stars you know they're on stage and and it's in the old days of money so as a young guy you're earning a lot of money Sure am. Sure am. And uh, uh, my dad always made sure that uh, he invested it for me. Uh, the last trust fund matured later in my life in case I I blew everything else. You know, I'd have a little something to retire on. But uh, like when I bought my first car, he made sure that the money that went to the car was always out of my allowance. Always out of my allowance. Always out of my allowance. And then when I went to buy the car, I bought my first car, right? It was really cool. So, uh, done very well through the years. Am I correct? Because I think I read it in a newspaper uh, that at 11 years old, it, you tell me if this is true or not, 11 years old, you were earning two, $2,500 a week? It's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've and got that was, all my old contracts. And uh, I mean, we're talking in the early 70s. So that's uh, an enormous amount of money that, uh, but your father kept your feet on the ground. He sure did. And uh, he taught me a value and uh, he also taught me uh, life can be short. So you better enjoy it. His, his, his favorite his, uh, saying was, uh, you got to grab the biscuits when they're passed. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you know, so yeah. But you must have seen over the years, over the years with your father, with your father performing, uh, performing and, and yourself, you must have seen an, an enormous change. 
in in oh absolutely in the entertainment world oh absolutely uh you know like working with liberace i, I wish he was around now to see how our society has progressively moved forward on the issue uh of openly being with someone you love to marry someone you love to adopt children and to to be moved freely from society and now of course with the pharmaceutical companies literally coming up with a uh, a couple pills you take and that you can't transmit the AIDS virus any further it's just a fantastic moment I wish you could have been around to see it uh, the tour of champions and figure skating was born you know that was great I was on it a couple times myself uh, watching figure skating change from Dorothy Hamill style to a very more athletic style of what you had to do when you went out there uh, to see the birth of uh, Torville and Dean obviously you know, uh, and then of course track and field. John Curry, you perform with John Curry, who uh, in oh, uh, great. for for me as an Englishman, very very proud that uh, well we had three Olympic champions in uh, three consecutive Olympics. John being the first in uh, 1976. But you worked with John, no? I did. Uh, I did a tour of champions. Uh, Obersorf in '88 was really great. And uh, he's just a fantastic individual. I enjoyed uh, working with him. I, you know, there are some stories. Uh, I don't know if I, if, if I guess enough time has passed. Uh, he got a little nervous in some of those exhibitions, Ian. And uh, he asked me these questions. He says, "Aren't you afraid to go out there and just go splat, meaning all your props fall on the ground?" And I go, "Yeah, but it's just a performance. I'll get another chance." And I warmed up properly. I did all my prep work properly. You can't stop the random nature of life. But here's the thing. When I go splat, you're going to see me smile. Because <laughs> I know that that's so rare to happen. As yeah, long yeah, as you go out there and enjoy it. He had quite a different character. I mean, absolutely. Um, I think other people have coined the phrase that he was the, the Rudolf uh, Nureyev of the ice. But um, I, I, I sort of... I betrayed myself, uh, really, because I was just getting into ice skating. John was becoming Olympic uh, or becoming world champion and all of this. And uh, and I'm from Bristol and we had Robin Cousins became Olympic champion in 80. And I was like following Robin, Robin, Robin. I, we were from the same city. And, uh, and I sort of didn't watch John enough because it was only years after I realized, oh, uh, Robin was fantastic, but also John, completely different, but just uh, a master, a master of, of, of how he performed. But I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to say that he had a fragile um, uh, character, but he was absolutely beautiful. I mean, very artistic and, and maybe not like Robin Cousins, you know, backflip and everything, just balls to the wall, you know, just crazy. But, uh, but well... Uh, also, one of the greats. So, have you Cranston, have you set you know, out yourself because you've 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 you're you're performing, you're in Vegas, you're going to ice capades, you're with the the, the the elite, like this. But at the same time, at the same time, you're training and training and breaking records, and and still following this sort of parallel uh, universe of achieving uh, greatness. 
Well, when you're around a bunch of Olympians and ice capades and you have Olympic level coaches that are there every day, it, it just rubbed off on me how to take care of my body, how to eat right, how to have a long career as possible, when to take a risk, when not to, what fitness meant to longevity, what fitness meant to your daily performance. You know, uh, I do. I open my routine at the, at the MGM and, and the ice capades with four or five Frisbees. How I added that to my act was with ice capades, when I first joined, there was this guy in the chorus who was learning adagio. And he saw I had an ultimate Frisbee in my bag. And he says, hey, we ought to throw it. And I said, well, I'm just learning. So we, he taught me the game of ultimate. We're throwing it back and forth. And then he said, you know what? If you did this out on the ice and you were moving, you could throw it. It would trap the air and the aerodynamics would allow the Frisbee to go way out over the audience and then boomerang back. Well, that 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 guy was uh, Patrick Swayze. So he Fantastic. was, in, in, oh, he was, God, not only was a very handsome guy, you know, but he was so skilled. And I reached out to him when he was fighting his cancer. And I got a nice letter back from his wife. And he said that he didn't remember me specifically, but the letter is kind of interesting because it remembers that no matter how early he got to the arena to train, there was always this little kid there training already. And if that was me, he wished me well and thanked for the thank you for the uh, for the kind wishes. But the one thing I got from Patrick Swayze that changed my life was and helped me with nerves was transcendental meditation. See, uh, before doing an NBA final, which is a really intense thing, but before you ground the court, I do the same thing now as I as I learned from Transcendental Meditation. I put my feet up, I cover my eyes, I lower my heart rate for about 10 minutes, and I relax. And I just relax, I think about a little bit of my routine, I don't think too much, I get up, and I go straight out, okay? Because, even in the NBA, when the halftime act, or the finals, for, if you're doing the halftime for the NBA finals, they want you there like 10 minutes beforehand. Well, that just doesn't work for me. <laughs> right? right so I get there right at about two minutes so you know there's this old saying you don't have to worry about Albert Lucas if he's not there he's dead <laughs> I, I will always remember I will always remember you telling our uh, show producer uh, the same thing if I'm not there don't don't worry I'm dead I'm never coming but then you did but then yes yeah, but then you got you got into the NBA and the NHL was uh what was that? Was that because people like Ice Capades uh, unfortunately disappeared? And was it, was it a, a redirection of what you did? Because you didn't do that at the very beginning of the uh, NHL no. and NPA. No. no, you sort of developed your, developed your no notoriety in that world as well. Yeah. Uh, what happened was uh, we were playing the McNichols Sports Arena when the, uh, the Colorado uh, NHL team, the Colorado uh, Rockies, made the playoffs against the Philadelphia Flyers, and we actually had to give up a night at the Ice Capades to uh, allow, accommodate the game, which was really cool. But the arena manager says, well, Albert, you know, can you, can you come out on one of our periods and, and just do three minutes? I said, sure. 
like every artist. Of course I can perform. <laughs> well, I didn't know it was going to lead to the NHL All-Star Game or the, or the Central Hockey League, the Division Three leagues, uh, the International Hockey League. And then ultimately in 2002, I performed uh, for uh, the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. Yeah, it was great honor. You got, uh, I mean, Michael great Jordan's I, last uh, championship, no? Oh, same building. The same building in Salt Lake City was uh, was when it was where Michael Jordan. See, this is this this is why I think it's a simulation. Because the coincidence was just too weird. In fact, uh, I think. Um, yeah, hold on a second. Hold on. So I did his famous last game where he hit that incredible shot, won his, winning his sixth championship with little or no time left. And I'm in the wings, and uh, next to me is the company who bought the court <laughs> in case it was Jordan's last game, right? And the arena they bought, manager... They, they bought, for, uh, you mean they time, bought, you bought the floor? They bought the floor. They bought the floor. They bought... They, yeah, it was a speculation investment. They bought the floor in case it was Jordan's last game. I'm surprised you didn't buy that. And this was the Delta Center. <laughs> so, anyways, he says to the company, look, he did the halftime. You know, shouldn't you give him a piece of the floor? Well, years later, I didn't realize that they had sent a piece of the floor to my dad. Signed by Michael Jordan. Fantastic. And you know what number they gave me? They gave me number 24 of 223 that Michael Jordan signed. What a beautiful and, memento. But the, the memento, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that has traveled so much and, uh, and kept all this stuff. I mean, I, it's it's beautiful everything that you've got because I've seen many things you've got you've got programs you've got amazing amazingly interesting memorabilia from from your Vegas shows from your from your life and you've kept it all it's it's just uh, beautiful it should it should be in a museum well the Ed Sullivan my Ed Sullivan costume and the prop box I've retained uh, and so the uh, Smithsonian institution uh, america's museum they're going to do a retrospect on ed sullivan and since i was the youngest performer i have the best chance of being the last performer alive who appeared on the ed sullivan show but i'm donating it uh to uh to the smithsonian uh what happened is and what this is all about behind me here is this is like the first time i've unveiled all this stuff when my dad passed away I hope you're at a secret location I realize right now. I am. Un, it's un, un, unknown. unknown. <laughs> I realized that I had never looked back because I was going forward. I was, I, I, I was just sending this stuff all back, right? I just sent it all back. My grandmother would pack it away. Uh, my mom would pack it away. I would pack it away and put it in boxes. And then, of course, as you know, I had like three storage places with all this. And here's some of the banners you can see that fell, fell into my bag on the way out of some events, uh, you know, uh, which is really cool. The CBS Sports Banner, that's, uh, that was from the NBA Finals. I was a volunteer for the Olympic Torch Tour uh, for three different Olympics. 
the ESPN banner was from the uh, Miami Mile where I ran 4.28 while juggling three balls. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's another thing that you, 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 you're, you've moved from stage onto uh, ice and uh, still, still working on attaining medals, uh, uh, medals and records and stuff like this. But then also, what, how did the whole, the juggling, which you basically seem to, I think, uh, have started and taken it to a, a completely another level. How, what, was the, what was the drive in them and the motivation to do that? Because when I see your posters, you're, you're, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not looking at your, your typical stereotype juggler. I'm looking at an athlete or an entertainer or a juggler. Um, you have a huge interest in, in athletics as well. Yeah. Well, again, this influence of being around exceptionalism rubs off. Okay. The fact that I ran, my dad bought me my first pair of running shoes, uh, and he believed in running what we now call high intensity training once or twice a week. Okay. And not a lot of mileage, but high intensity training. Now I'm a bit older, so I'm kind of wondering why I can still do some of my world records. I still teach students. In fact, I'm teaching several to beat my old marks. And then I'm going to do the 14 rings publicly, and then I'm going to retire. But the reason that I'm able to have held on to it so long is because of those sprints. It turns out uh, we're going to, I'm, going to do, I'm going to do some neurological testing as soon as uh, this period of, of sort of uh, limited travel is over. But it turns out that moving your hands like a sprinter keeps the nerve endings fresh. And what do you need as a juggler? Right? So that one little odd that one little odd thing, and you know in athletics, it's like that. Now, um, you know, all this stuff behind me was in boxes, and I didn't realize how much I'd done it. Like you never knew that I was a volunteer uh, uh, and uh, an intern on the Calypso. You never knew that. You know I was a summer intern on the Calypso, you know, and uh, tested equipment for US divers, and it was a great honor. Got to met the man himself. Got a nice photo. They Jacques gave Cousteau. me the flag. Jacques Cousteau, yeah. You know, it was a great honor. And, um, you know, then, of course, I took up Japanese fencing, uh, kendo, when I was in Japan, which was great because with the left and right hand, I took up foil fencing, left and right-handed. So I did a lot of things. Like Bruce Lee, if you remember, he took up fencing to develop his left and right-handedness because I was born left-handed. My dad taught me to be right so I wouldn't overdevelop. You see how all these things just start coming together that really weren't of my creation. They're just the pursuit of excellence and the people I was able to meet. When I got my dive master's certification, the head of PADI, Professional Association of Dive Instructors, said, look, we're doing this testing program of gear and we need some volunteers. Report. And I did. And there's the Calypso. He never told me what it was for. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know? Albert, you said you wanted to learn diving, but you logged over 3,000 uh, uh, dives recorded. You received a lifetime master diver certification. I mean, we're not talking like, yeah, I learned how to dive. Uh, yes, I excelled. Well, that's uh, nothing's a dalliance. If you're going to do it, do it right. And I loved wreck diving and uh, deep diving. 
And, you know, it was very interesting. Uh, later in life, I tried to get an age waiver to go uh, into Navy salvage to be a, a naval officer. And given all the years that I had put towards juggling, my dad was like totally supportive. He says, oh, time in uniform would be great. So uh, I had to get the age waiver. I went to Quantico. I tested because I was two years past the cutoff at that time. And uh, I did what any professional would do. I, I cheated. <laughs> I, hired, I hired a retired Marine Corps sergeant who, who knew the program inside and out. And I said, hey, I need to hire you so I can get through this program. He said, okay. He says, but if I don't think you can make it, you stop, right? I go, yeah. If you say I can't make it, then I'll stop. And, and so that's what you do. I learned that from the pros. You, you hire the best, you put your best effort into it, and you accept reality, right? But your work so, ethic is amazing. You know, yeah, and I don't know. Uh, I feel sometimes like, you know, when you get that tube of toothpaste and you roll it all the way to the end and it still keeps coming out at the end, you know, and it, you, you know it's kind of finished. I kind of feel like that sometimes. Like, okay, I'm, I'm at this age now. How much more do I have left? It seems like seems like I've got more left. And and baseball in Japan, no, for two two seasons. Played for the new. I uh, played what they call industrial league baseball. It was great for the new Fujia Corporation. Really enjoyed it. Le uh, uh, Tommy Lasorda of the Dodgers, uh, who had a niece who was a figure skater, she'd come to see us at the sports arena, and so um, he saw me with my glove and he said, "Do you play?" And I had just been throwing out back, and I said, "Well." Uh, not organized ball. And he says, well, the Japanese are looking for some, uh, you know, uh, players for their industrial league. Why don't you come out to the stadium and uh, we'll check it out, see if uh, see if you could cut it. So, you know, I was, a, I was a pretty good hitter and I played left field. But the big thing about playing in Japan, it's very disciplined. And that was made to order for me. And, um, and uh, what, what did you do with the United Nations? Well, in Japan, uh, a large part of my life uh, has been working very quietly with charities, raising money for American Cancer Society, leukemia, uh, you name it. It's just, it's always been a very quiet part of, of my life. Uh, when I was in Japan, it was no different. Uh, I was raising money for the YMC program for kids with disabilities, a summer camp. Uh, you know, the Japanese culture is uh, very unique, as you know. And so uh, raising money for that type of pursuit was a little difficult. So the emperor of Japan sponsored it. It was on the, on the royal grounds in, in Tokyo, the emperor's palace. So uh, I joggled the emperor's 10K, and then I gave a performance there. Plus, leading up to the event, I did a show at the U.S. Embassy and the British Embassy, to raise money, and then I did shows across Japan to raise money, and uh, and that day I was able to give them a very nice envelope of donations, and that's where I met Guy Prim. He was the UN High Commissioner for Refugees for the UN, and we developed a lifelong friendship. And uh, right after that, he comes up to me and he goes, Albert, he says, uh, "Do you have your your props?" And I go, "Yeah." He said, okay, he said, uh, just, just follow me. So we went into the courtyard with some of the other volunteers from the race that day. And the emperor has this glass balcony that he comes out on. 
And I got to do a three-minute performance for the Emperor of Japan. What a great honor. What a great honor. And I've never exploited that in my career. In fact, this is the first time I've ever really discussed it. Uh, I've never, I never exploited any of that part of my life, but... Uh, well, like I, I say, that, that as this, artists, where you are now, you're at a secret location. You've never exploited that. I mean, not only you're, you're, you have a, a huge respect for the history of everything, whether you've been to Athens, <coughs> excuse me, um, and, and your pursuit, but then your, your, your interest is diverse. Like you say, United Nations, raising money for uh, 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 different charities. Um, but, but yeah you don't you don't you you don't self-promote you just you you seem to like to just give back where you can and give your time give your energy give your uh yourself it's uh it's part of the creative arts uh, and many did it before me and I've, I've always gotten great enjoyment you know from being involved i especially believe in the credo of the united nations and, and the Commission on Refugees and what they do in the world. I'm a complete supporter. I believe in the Olympic idea of peace through sports and uh, understanding through sportsmanship and, and cultural exchange. I believe in those ideals completely. And I try to foster them as I go through my life. And I enjoyed my time in China and I enjoyed my time. I love Hong Kong, it's one of my favorite cities. You know, and uh, I've got to get back to Europe. Uh, it, it's kind of a weak spot. I haven't been, I haven't been over there in years, so to come I need to, to get back. I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to come and give you a, a demonstration of of, uh, of my uh, my new golf game. You know, and uh, see see where you are. I don't know uh, if you had much time with your. Uh, <laughs> I oh. mean, seven times in a row. That's I, how many times did you sleep? Or not sleep. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the pandemic has uh, uh, given us a little more time of uh, uh, to not not think of other things. We're pushing on how can we prepare? How can we even give the guest a better day when they come? It's not easy, as you know, and I think you you would appreciate. And I remember speaking with our uh, with our founder, Roland Mack. Uh, Michael Mack's father, and, and he was sitting there, and and uh, and I was telling the I, I was a guy I think I'd been here a few years, and I was saying, hey, it's um, somehow you, I, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's sort of easier to get to the best in the world at something, but what's really difficult is to win it again and again and again, because we are in the whole world, the benchmark, every single person is watching us. So if they're watching us, they are judging their quality, whether it's the gardening, whether it's the shows, whether it's the roller coasters, whether it's the ambience, the whole park is just an amazing ambience everywhere. Everything, every, every product that we create and provide uh, has given us fantastic honor of being the best park in the world. But next year, we've got to improve it. Because everyone's watching us and and, and uh, seeing how we do it and trying to attain the same the same product deliv delivery as us, so it's it's a constant constant battle. How can we re reward our guest? They I think they do trust us and they go with us. You know our uh, the Mac family owners, they are um, they take chances because it's pretty it's pretty damn difficult to do something sure. that's never been done before because this is what we're doing here. Right. If you're the best and, and consecutively the best every year because you're, you're, taking, uh, you're going forward. 
And um, yeah, not easy, but uh, you know about that. Ian, uh, impos uh, professionals do it when it's impossible. And they also make it look easy, like anybody, that your, your auntie could do it because you make it look so easy. But they don't realize all the hours that goes into the simplicity of the perfection of a show, the way you enter a theater, you exit the theater, right? All Everything you need to have a good time is there. But that's just one little niche. You have a whole park to do this with. I worked for Anheuser-Busch, uh, Busch Gardens uh, for many years, uh, both in Williamsburg and in Tampa, and of course, Dolly. And I learned a lot. And what I learned was it's a tough job to make it comfortable for the guests. So that's why I congratulations are in order. Because I go through this every day myself, uh, getting, setting a new world record. I get emails all the time. Hey, this guy in the Ukraine, this guy in Russia, this guy in China. Did you? He's almost going to break your record. What are you going to do? And I go, well, um, uh, I'm going to go out to dinner with my wife. And, uh, you know, because, and then the next morning I'm up at 4 a.m. practicing like a madman, you know. How, how many world records have you, have you recorded? Uh, Guinness Book World Records researched that and Norris came up with, I had said, 28 in the last century. And uh, my ring record of 13 rings still stands. I said it in like 2002. My record as seven rings as 10 years old still stands. And I'm the only juggler in competition to do 10 rings in both... Uh, 20th and 21st centuries so oh, you know love it and i equaled rico Ristel, i equaled ristelli's uh eight uh, 10 ball eight plate record i'm getting ready to break that by uh by doing 12 balls and uh 10 plates but the 14 ring record that's uh that's the one i do because i've done it privately right i've never publicly done it I'm sort of like those great artists that, you know, would keep their work of art in the studio. And until they sold it or until they signed it, it was always theirs, right? Yeah. And it was a great honor to uh, do it for my dad. When he saw me do it, he goes, okay, I can retire as a coach now. <laughs> you know, but uh, to do it at my age is just really, I'm very fortunate. Uh, some of my ice skating records still stand, of course. But the 400-meter uh, hurdles with, I set with Chris Akabusi, who in 1991 won the uh, World Athletics Championship, which was held in Tokyo. Remember when Great Britain came back and won the 4x400 relay? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I was in the stadium. I was in the stadium, and I was rooting for the Brits over the Americans and I, because they had so much guts, right? We had, like, this talent pool that was spilling over. But you got to say, they the Brits wanted it more. What's your what's your Chris mile, What's your mile record? What's your mile record uh, juggling? Your time. Uh, four four twenty eight. I did it at the Miami Mile. Juggling. Juggling, yeah. And I'm just getting under sixty seconds in the four hundred meter hurdles. And uh, the hundred ten meter hurdles. That was a tough one. Because I, I had to learn to alternate hurling with right leg, left leg, because I couldn't quite carry three steps. Uh, uh, but I still hold the record for that. 110 meter hurdles, you know, while juggling three uh, balls. When, because of your respect for the history, 
Um, do you do you um, do you think about okay? I'd like to try and break this record, and I'd like to break it there. You 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 know you know. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm I'm the just I'm just thinking. Enrico Rustelli records. Pardon? No, the Enrico Rustelli records. I wanted to go there. In fact, uh, there's a couple jugglers in Italy. I wanted to help. I was going to set the record, break Enrico Rustelli's record. But then I wanted to teach uh, an, a, a true Italian to take the record back, and which they would enjoy. But I would train them to do that, right? And I would great, I would get great enjoyment out of teaching people to break any record I may or may not set, because you see that's the key. Not only going to the place, you know, where a record is really great. Like I went to the Academy of Circus Arts in Moscow, one of the famous buildings. Okay that turned out all these great performers. And I had just broken Ignatov's 11 ring record by doing 12. So they invited me. I met Gorbachev. He could juggle three balls, by the way. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that, right. <laughs> so here I am in front of all the coaches, the performers, in a private performance. I do the 12 rings. I get a respectful round of applause. But then I juggle the four scarves. <laughs> and they had never seen this before. They had never seen this before. I got a standing ovation for four scarves. Yeah. So it's not about it's not about just the location. It was also uh, that they had never seen that. And that's one of the keys when you asked me, how did I learn when I was younger? I don't know if history will bear this out, but it was my dad who came up with juggling scarves. He had worked with a uh, female magician, uh, the Magadors, in South America. And she would do these pigeons appearing and reappear and disappearing. And she'd take the silk scarf. She'd show it to everybody. You could see through it. She'd throw it in the air. She'd take another one. She'd throw it in the air. And she'd go like this. And then she'd bunch them together. And a pigeon would come out. It was beautiful. And my dad saw that. And he said, wow, that, that, that could be a great teaching aid to teach people how to juggle using silk scarves. So when I spoke at the uh, uh, National Geographic Society, I was on the Groves Inner stage, that very famous stage where all the explorers announced all these great things. I did my 12 rings, which was the current record. Again, I got a respectful amount of applause, you know. And then I had everyone in the audience juggle three silk scarves. I taught them all how to juggle. And for that, I was remembered. They, they said it was one of the moments of the century at the National Geographic Society, so I was very honored by that. But uh, you know, so you, it's not about where you do it; it's it's what you're doing. It's what you're doing. You just never know. People don't. People uh, and uh, I think ninety five percent of the people, or maybe more, they can't tell how many rings are in the air because I've I've seen you juggle, and when you've got uh, seven or eight or nine or ten, I lose it. I, I I'm lost because. I mean, how when you're when you're when you did the flash thirteen world record, how one cycle, yeah. How much? Uh, how high is the ring? The highest, uh, the highest point. How high are you throwing it? Professor Shannon got it right. He never, he he never saw me do the thirteen. He saw me do the twelve, and he was very kind. He put that he put that in his book. But he knew exactly how many feet it was going to take. It was 34 feet. 
And when I did 14 rings, I went to 43 feet, just as he predicted. In fact, uh, the 14 ring world record, I did it to the largest, I did it in front of the largest freestanding statue in the Western world. It's a statue of Athena. Oddly enough, it's in Nashville, Tennessee, where they built a one-to-one -one replica of the Parthenon of Greece. You got to go see it. It's in Nashville. It's in Centennial Park. Well, we've got the It's picture. a one-to-one -one replica. The 70-foot bronze doors, everything, and the statue inside with Athena. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, your show will be the first time that photo has been seen publicly. Love it. Thank you very much. Albert, How I, I, I you, you've trained with uh, some of the world's best athletes, as you say, Olympic, uh, Olympic medal winners and, and winners and all of this stuff. How do these guys feel when you're running the hurdles or 100 or 200 or um, how do they feel about the guy standing uh, running with them who's actually juggling? How, uh, how, how do they feel about that? Well, in Tampa, I was training with Colin Jackman, the, um, the 110 meter hurdle world record holder and uh he was a ruthless trainer but it turns out that every morning he was out there i was out there the only difference was i was juggling three balls and he said anybody who has this kind of work ethic you know he'd love to train with and so i have never received anything but the most wonderful feedback and it seems like olympians and i think business individuals such as yourself they, you may not have the same ability. You didn't maybe go to the same school. Maybe you didn't get the same advantages. But when you get up every day, you have the same 24 hours. We all do. And the Olympians respect those who put in the sweat equity. And I think, I think that like the family who own Europa Park, from what I'm able to read, I think they're very much the same. They appreciate and they reward that sweat equity. Absolutely, but but um, the uh, the Olympics juggling was in the Olympics. Am I correct? A form of juggling called club swinging was in the Olympic Games. Uh, it was, last time was 1932, and uh, we're hoping to slowly get it back with a form of juggling called a non-theatrical version called sport juggling. In fact, uh, uh, that photo you have behind you there—that's Norris McWhorter. And uh, no, the other left shoulder. Sorry. You got it on your screen. Yeah. That was at a special ceremony at uh, in New York at the Empire State Building, where, the, where he gave me this beautiful trophy, by the way, and I got the title of the greatest uh, juggler of the 20th century because I had set more world records, more diverse. But what's important about that day is that he coined the term sport juggling and sport juggler to sort of define the new categories that I had opened up, that we weren't really theatrical, we were athletes who just happened to juggle. And, I, and that's when I started uh, researching that club swinging and was part of the gymnastics events. And if we return it to its core events, there's a chance we could petition ourselves for consideration. And so uh, His Excellency uh, Antonio Samaranch, the uh, former head of the IOC, a wonderful, wonderful Spanish gentleman. He was my first sponsor, and he allowed me to see how sports are garnered and behind the scenes at the IOC. 
and uh, we're ready, pretty much ready to launch. But like Baron de Coubertin, who knew that the Olympic Games, when they were reinvented, had to be held, the first one had to be held in Greece, and the first president of the IOC had to be Greek. Uh, I, I, although I founded the International Sport Juggling Federation with Norris, uh, we've picked a European to be the first president, and the first true world championship or sport juggling world championship will be held in Europe. Uh, we're just look at, we're looking forward to the site. It might be Italy, it might be the Netherlands. Uh, um, Monte Carlo has been a site that's uh, popped up as well. It might be Germany. We don't know. We'll we'll let uh, we'll let the new president decide that. But uh, I look forward to uh, my title in the organization is director of Olympic development. I developed a new competition format that is absolutely made for TV and made for people who have no idea what juggling is. Uh, right? is, is but the in ninety growing? seconds, you is can the tell. interest growing? Yes, yes, because. When we watch the Tokyo games, and I love Tokyo, by the way, you're going to see skateboarding. You're going to see rock climbing, right? Uh, and then ultimate is going to be part. The game of Frisbee ultimate is going to be part of the Olympic games. And I believe in Paris 2024, surfing is going to be part of the games. In fact, they're going to hold it remotely, I believe, in Tahiti. That's... Uh, yeah, and uh, oh. that's uh, that's part of the new games. Now, what that. makes sport juggling very interesting is that we're gender neutral. Men and women compete in one category. Yeah. In fact, yeah, in fact, women have an advantage in numbers juggling. Because just like in the shooting sports, women are exceptional marksmen or marksperson to be politically Right, uh, it's my age catching up to me. Yeah, uh, but I say it respectfully because I believe in the progressive uh, positives that we try to do of not insulting people and not bullying people. I'm absolutely having experienced that in my own my own life and career. Uh, I'm totally against it. Totally against it. You know, and yeah. So I, I love the, the progressive positions. Now, when you when a woman goes to shoot, there's a smaller in between each heartbeat, there's a smaller time advantage. On average, the in-between heartbeats, a woman has a little longer pause. And juggling numbers, juggling numbers is about this pause, is about this tempo, is about breathing. So technically, women should be able to juggle the greater numbers more so than men. The body strength just doesn't get into it. It's the tempo, it's the breathing, it's the ability to concentrate. And women have proven themselves in so many sports. Uh, I believe that when we give them the platform that sport juggling will provide, you're going to see women just blow up the world records and men are going to have a hard time keeping up. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I hope that uh, if, it, well, if anyone can, if anyone can use their passion and uh, experience than it's you, and I hope that uh, I hope that you you realize that dream. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it's really funny. If you know me, critics would say, "Well, Albert, you're 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 pushing sport juggling to the Olympic level because it's the only thing you haven't won." And that would be a fair that would be a fair critique if you didn't know me. Okay, but if you knew me you would realize I don't want to compete. 
I want to be the guy in the suit that awards the first gold medal. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it because you'll still be like, well, maybe I could do this. But Albert, what's, I mean, uh, I know you, but the people listening in and all of this, um, yes, you're 60 years old, performing, um, <gasps> per- performing as good as you were 30 years ago. Still now, still, like you say, pushing, want to make another record and, and stuff like this. What, how, uh, I mean, I don't believe it's luck, but we all sort of need luck with, with good health. But then you complement it with uh, looking after yourself, eating right, uh, avoiding any alcohol and all of that stuff. But how, how long can you go by still improving? As, a, as a, I've seen your act, and, and your, your stage act, you know, that's um, now you, you combine fantastic presentation and uh, dialogue and you mix comedy in with it and all of that stuff. But how, how far at 60 can you think, can you carry on progressing? Wow. Uh, when I take on students, I give them the benefit and they learn more rapidly because... I can say, here's the tempo for eight rings, here's the tempo for nine rings, here's the tempo for 10 rings. And I can do it right in front of them. And they learn much faster when they're that close to actually seeing being it done, right? Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I am as strong and fast as I ever was, Ian, but only four days a week. Right. <laughs> My wife says it's more like three days. Yeah. But I mean, but but so what's, so what's the uh, no? Do you have the end? What do you want from the next ten years? I mean, uh, uh, no retirement. You're not going to like put that suit and tie on, and take off your uh, sports clothes, right? Well, uh, I, I sort of made a joke, but your the, the answer to your, to your question is the great Francis Brunn performed phenomenally till his seventies, right? It was only the injury he suffered, I believe, at the Lido where he fell and broke his hip when the elevator didn't come up on the stage. I believe that's what took him out. Otherwise, there's no telling how long he would go. Uh, the, the idea now is I enjoy producing. I produce uh, sporting events, halftime events, award ceremonies. Uh, and then I wish to set up a series of academies to pass on the system of how you learn to juggle, not tricks. But how do you learn to juggle? Like when you get to eight objects or nine objects, you can take that ability and turn it to anything creative that you would like because the ability to create, to calculate that many objects in the air, and then you want to do something absolutely holistically creative with three objects or four objects or a single object. Once you have that ability and you go down to whatever you want to apply it to, phenomenal things happen. And I think that's the next generation. But I don't want the historical knowledge that was passed on to me from all the greats to my dad that I'm now passing on to students who I am certifying as instructors. Because here's why. You know, like, I got a prop box up there. That's from the Ed Sullivan Show. Okay? Every juggler has a prop box. But what happens to them all? 
There's so very few. If you go to a juggling museum or a circus museum, you might have a few props, a costume, but where was their prop box, right? Right. Well, I submit to you, Ian, what is not only lost was the technique on how to train. So what I'm going to pass on is that technique. I'm going to give it to the next generation, and hopefully they will add to it and what they find valuable, discard what they don't, and at least that knowledge won't be lost. Do you think that we have to, um, you know, because every, every show has some sort of media uh, evolution into it. You know, uh, in our day, let's say that we had a beautiful set behind us. Now, now there's a monster LED wall. We're talking VR. We're talking uh, AR, you know, and, and do you think there's any uh, evolution in, in your interest that you can in, involve in this? Yeah, you know, uh, years ago, my brother, my older brother worked with NASA, uh, NASA on remote surgery. In other words, a surgeon here could connect with a machine, no telling what distance. The first was working with the United Nations to do it, say, in Africa and so forth, where the machine, under the guidance of the doctor, could do an operation. Well, we're there. We're there now, Ian, because of the speeds of connects. And with Tesla and the Starlink, all those little satellites going around, you're gonna have worldwide connection to the internet. So that's the only thing that's held back for that. What I see in the future is maybe that a live performance of anything is going to be so valuable, so expensive, that what you're going to see maybe is a hologram. In other words, they would take my act with a hologram and that a life actual hologram that you can't tell the difference will be what performs and it'll be all over the world has maybe asked, even has on anyone, mars has anyone asked you to record you with this technology uh the the 14 rings yes there's a couple companies that said they would like they would like to videotape the 14 rings but tape it in a three-dimensional manner they're not sure how it will go but they're looking for subject matter. Because I, I, I would guess, because you throw them, I mean, the 14 rings are going so fast. It's, it's incredible how, how, how fast you are, how, the, like you say, the mechanics of your body is just so quick. The response, the muscle response is just incredible. 3.2 seconds. 3.2 seconds. That's how long it takes to get out seven rings. Yeah, amazing. It's the the only person that beats the only person that beats is uh, the quick draw. The guys yeah. who do the quick draw, they're the only guys that have the fastest speed, faster speed. Yeah. So as as I but mean, it's not. You're you're you're. I'm sorry. It's not my most technical trick. It's not. What's the most technical trick? The hardest trick I ever did was nine rings. Two hoops on my leg, balancing a mouse stick with a ball going down the center of the ice. We've got this picture. I hope so. Yes, we do. Let me tell you about this picture. This picture was taken at Madison Square Garden, and uh, I was 17 years old. Now, I would do that trick, and I would hold it for like two and a half cycles. So... 18 plus some throws. And I do it going down the center of the ice. Now, 
Professor Shannon said that in, to, in order to do that, I would be making about 12 million calculations. He came to my show at the Boston Garden. He saw the morning show on Saturday. And he said, that's phenomenal. He came to the second show. And I, I didn't drop at that time. And he, and he started doing the calculations as three times in a row doing this trick. And he worked it all out for me. And in fact, I still have the piece of paper that did it, where he did all the calculations. And that's how we became friends, because he forced his way backstage and security grabs this old silver-haired guy that looks just like a professor, right? And he's got this back of a popcorn. He did it all in the back of a popcorn box. <laughs> right? And... And, he, and so my dad, you know, and, and myself, because I was slated to leave home at 18. My dad threw me out at 18, but I wasn't quite 18, right? So we're at Boston Garden. This guy's there. He comes over, and he shows me these calculations. He says, that's phenomenal. Do you realize that a cruise missile doesn't do this many calculations per second? And he's working this all out. He says, you got to come over to my house for dinner. Uh, I'm over here. And, and that's what started the friendship. Now, here's what I'd like to point out. I did that trick. Nine rings, tubes on the leg. Bounce the ball on my signal, go down the center of the ice. Now, I would usually get a standing ovation. In fact, I got a standing ovation at Madison Square Garden opening night, which was really cool because that was when Dorothy Hamill and she was uh, dating Dean Paul Martin at the time. And he was such a cool guy. You know, uh, I was so sad when he passed away. He was a great individual, great, great guy. And, uh, but anyways, she was very kind at the press conference the next day because the, 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 the critics wrote, I think it was Variety, that said, um, Dorothy Hamill's billed as a star, but the evening standing ovation went to all things an ice skating juggler. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you how cool Dorothy is. At her press conference the next day, she goes, well, you notice that the uh, critics, uh, you know, they weren't very kind to you. Uh, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't think you did enough and all that. And she says, oh, I got it worked out. I'm going to learn to juggle. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful lady, beautiful now, lady. The, the footnote to this is, Ian, I only did this trick for two years. Because at the end of that two years, I started dating. And I could never focus with that same intensity to do that trick ever again. Yeah, but uh, life, life takes over. I just couldn't do that trick again, man. <laughs> Once I started dating, yeah, yeah. Yeah, life always yeah. jumps in the way sometimes. I'm gonna put this video on now. It's from 1970. Like I say, I can't, um, I can't really, uh, I can't imagine how you felt because you knew the Ed Sullivan show was uh, the number one show in America. You knew, I don't know how many million people were going to be watching it. And uh, you as a, a young man got this amazing uh, opportunity, which, which most certainly promoted your career, gave you uh, a beautiful thing. Oh, gosh, thing. yeah. But uh, let's let's just uh, let's just have a look at this. I, uh, it's it's a wonderful wonderful video. The uh, the oh Ed Sullivan Cooper show. Cooper started practicing when he was three years old. Made his professional debut at the age of five, and now at the ripe old age of ten, 
It's about to feed all of us to some amazing feats of judgment. Very, I, I, I mean, uh, obviously, I never, uh, I watch these shows. Uh, here you are, here you are now. And immediately you jump in with what? Is that five rings you're jumping? This is, you see, I, I don't even know how many rings you're juggling. <laughs> yeah, five, then I go to six. Uh, already a performer, already a performer. And, then, and now you're coming over for the six. Who's throwing those into you? That's not Ed, right? That's my dad. That's yeah. my dad. Yeah. Yeah. My God, I, I, yeah, when I watch it, your hands are so quick. I just, I, I don't understand. I can't tell you how many times people try to pay me to wear that outfit again. Yeah, you said you've still got the outfit. Uh, you you, you can't get yeah. into that now, right? <laughs> then I do the Francis Brunn garbage trick. Oh, my God. A garbage trick? Spinning the... Is that yeah, what that's called? what my dad called it. It's a tribute to Francis Brunn's uh, uh, trick that he did. Yeah, this is what, this is what also... Uh, it amazes me because uh, you've got to be ambidextrous. No, you've got to have total control over your left hand just as equally as to your right hand. Yeah, yeah. That's why my dad taught me to be right-handed, even though I was born left-handed. Hey, there's a, uh, now those flames. So why don't you take? Is that a lot of flames? Look at the look on my face. <laughs> my dad didn't know if the if the flames had if the fuel had evaporated, so he put extra fuel on there. Man, those were the Hottest flames. Look at that. Look at that panic look on my face. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Really good. But you don't, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't recognize that you are um, shocked. It looks part of it, but uh, it looks pretty damn difficult. Oh, yeah. I just kept going. And then at the end, you know, Sullivan calls us over, which was really cool because we didn't expect that. Yeah. Fantastic performance. Alan, oh my God, what a performer. Come here now. Congratulations, young fellow. How did your uh, son decide to go into juggling? Well, he comes from a show business family, yeah. Ed. In fact, I used to be one of Los Gatos' trio, and we appeared, on, we you appeared on your show. Years ago. Nine years ago. That's right. That's right, October 7th. Well, how about that? Now, let's have a big, uh, tremendous hand for... This extraordinary son of an extraordinary father. Very hard for me to watch that footage because I didn't know it at the time, but that was the last performance that my dad ever assisted me. You see, you talked about how big the Ed Sullivan show. That's true. In fact, is the first time, I don't say I got nervous, but I became aware that I had to do a good job because every adult kept coming up to me and saying, hey, I hear you're going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. Oh my God. The doors were on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, oh, oh, uh, Maria Callas was on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, uh, maybe it's my, um, uh, was that, was that live? Do they tape that? I didn't know it. In those days, did they tape it? Did you live. have one shot? No, it was absolutely live. One shot. In oh. fact, the comedian before me was named uh, Joan Rivers and she started stretching. And Mr. Sullivan had given me the last slot and given me the most time. Now, she was going over very well. And guess what? She started stretching and stretching because there was no way of cutting at that point. That was her shot as well. Now, yes. Yes, it was. So, I mean, I, I hold no malice. That's what people do. You got to do what you got to do, right? 
So the, the stage manager kept coming up to the dressing room and saying, okay, you've got to cut a minute off. You've got to cut a minute off. And, and then we were down to the version that you see it right now. And um, that was a real bad moment for me because as a child, it's, it's funny, I tell people, I showed up at the Ed Sullivan Theater as a child and then my childhood ended that day because I thought I had done something wrong and they were cutting my time. I thought that they didn't think I was prepared because I was a kid. So I'm going over in my prop box. I say, look, I'm, I'm warmed up. Look, my costume is ready. Look, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then I was at least aware enough to see emotion on the stage manager's face. And then a tear came down, you know, and that's when I realized what had happened, you know, that something was wrong. And my dad looked at me and he said, I can't tell you why, but you have to trust me. Do you understand what you have to do? And I, and I stopped for a moment and I said, yes, we're going to do this trick. We're going to do that trick. We're going to do the garbage trick. We're going to do the fire. And I got to do it a little faster tempo to make it all in for the time. And, and, and I got to pick it up. And I said, how many beats do you think I have to pick it up by? Dad said, I think you have to pick it up by two beats. He said, now the music may go off. They may not be able to follow you. So don't let it throw you, but don't let them get away from you, right? So it didn't match up. So I did it. Went upstairs. Dressing room. I hugged my dad. Start crying. Yeah. Really nice, Albert. And then, and then my, uh, and there was a knock on the door, and it was Ed Sullivan. And he comes in, and he said, "Young man," he said, "That was the most professional I had of any guest I had ever had on this show." And I said, "He said, I understand that you, think it was your fault. It's not your fault." And did a damn good job. That's what he said, damn good job. And we said, we'd love to have you back. And uh, he left and I, I, I walked out of that theater and my childhood was gone at that point because my dad, he never worked with me again as an assistant because he said, if you could handle what you just did, you're not you don't need anybody on stage as a guardian. And that's why he was on stage with me to make sure I understood how to, how to react to anything that I faced. And he said, if you face that and you handled it exactly right, then you, you know, you're, you're good. You're a professional. And, you know, it's, so with watching that footage, and this is the first time that footage has ever been allowed to air from, from the Ed Sullivan show itself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I sent you a photograph. It was uh, my dad in the last photograph. It's with a juggling kit that of the balls that he taught me how to juggle. Right. And uh, in the hospital room when, he, when we were losing him, I would juggle for him, you know. And the last photograph I was able to take 
was him holding the juggling balls in my hand together and with the kit that he had taught me. And I, I remind him of the, of the Greek classic Horatius, you know, who held the bridge, the great Roman soldier who stood there when the barbarians were coming and all the other men fled and he stood there and he said, no, I, I'm not going, I'm not going to go. He has a very famous line. He goes, what a better way for a man to die than facing uh, uh, impossible odds for the, uh, I can't, I'm so emotional right now. No, a better way for a man to die of facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods. And he stood there alone. And then the people, the people on the street, the vendors and everything heard that he was standing there alone, being abandoned by the other Roman soldiers, that they rallied, they rallied to his side. And I told my dad that he was alone in his mind, like Horatius on that bridge. Yeah. And that I was here for him. Thank you for sharing what yeah. a story, which is your life story, which is an emotional story, but uh, yeah. but it but it makes you who you are. It makes <laughs> it's part of it's part of uh, it's part of you. You're an emotional person. Um, yeah. Very uh, very committed to whatever you do, and uh, uh, you have my total respect and like i said your uh our friendship is something i treasure and uh we'll keep that thank you brother i uh i hope it's okay i i just miss my dad yeah and that footage brings it all back and uh your friendship means a lot and uh, this profession that he sacrificed for me to have means everything and the life that I've been lucky enough to live. I just want to say thank you. Thank you well, to everybody who sacrificed. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for, for sharing, us, sharing with us a, a story which uh, brings back uh, so much emotion. And uh, obviously you've, uh, you're, you are standing here today because of your father. Because uh, because of the guidance, because of the support, because of the advice, because of everything that your father gave you, you are who you are because of him. Your intellect, your uh, uh, ability, technical um, as an entertainer, and and uh, but he, if if he were here today, I'm sure he's looking down and uh, he's very proud, very proud of uh, how you've continued. And who you are, and you're an upstanding guy, and damn good entertainer, good athlete, <laughs> and uh, pretty good juggler. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and thank you. But Albert, um, so you're uh, you got to go for a rehearsal? No, you got to pay the bills. I sure do. I sure do. Yeah, I got a full dress tonight. I'm doing. Uh, you can see back there. I got the flaming fire whips. In fact, I hope I can keep these eyebrows a little bit longer this season. Well, if you uh, if you uh, if you're a little slower tonight, which I doubt, but uh, I apologize. But uh, 
it was, uh, I mean, I've known you as a, as a true and very, uh, very close friend for, uh, since 1994, I think, 94 or 95. And I want to thank you for your friendship, I, and and I want I want to thank you very much for the for the opportunity for you to come on this, and 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 I've learned something more. Uh, I I couldn't have more respect for you than I already have, but I've learned really even more uh, of what you've done in your life and and your commitment to everything you've done, and uh, and I think people will just. Um, uh, it's totally interesting. You've had an interesting. Uh, career up until now long may it continue but um i want to say uh thank you very much for sharing sharing your passion sharing your attention to uh with to everyone that's going to listen or watch this because um uh, it's a life lesson that simply simply as we know as sports people or entertainers you have to give everything if you want to succeed it's the only way or just don't bother doing it uh, nobody remembers who came second. That's the uh, that's the world we live in, you know. So, but I just want to say uh, to you, Ian, and to uh, to Olympians, and to anybody who sacrificed for a spouse, a loved one, a son or daughter, uh, as as people sacrificed for me and gave me their time, and my mom and dad. I just want to say thank you, thank you for the opportunities that you gave me. And I hope I showed you through my dedication and that I enjoyed them and that I was always, always appreciative. I never, I never took it for granted. And I certainly don't take our friendship for granted. And thank you, uh, thank you, Ian. I always remember the first time we went for a run together. This is what it means to be an Olympian. I was in top shape. You had a cigarette, you put it out and you ran a sub five minute mile. Do you remember that? I, I Five-minute mile. Um, but I think I was out of the show for the next three days or something because everything was killing. You ran, you ran, you ran 4.53 for the mile, never trained a moment, and that's what it means to be an Olympian. That's what it means. Um, so, uh, Ian, it's been great talking to you. No. And, uh, Albert, uh, you know that we can't, uh, we can't finish this until I think what we should do is just say a quick... Uh, a tuteur, as they say in French. We'll see you later because um, when when these restrictions, uh, then I would like to invite you over, uh, share this wonderful, wonderful adventure of a, a, a company that I'm working for, and come over here and and um, hey, uh, give give the chance for some of our guests or a lot of our guests to see to meet you and and to see you perform because you just look. Uh, Fan, fan, fantastic and you give everything and everything and and it would be nice that the people come and see uh i'm, I'm not sure whether you would uh bestow upon us the the honor to uh to be a venue to be a world record attempt but uh mm. we've got uh some great locations so certainly you should think about that but uh come over and uh and enjoy yourself uh with us I look forward to it. Uh, the facility speaks for itself. Uh, it'd be great, Ian, to come to see you, test out your golf game, uh, do a little juggling, and just to have a great day at the park. All right. Thank you very much, Albert. You take care. Good rehearsal and uh, good opening on uh, Thursday, right? Thursday, yep. Yeah. 
Well, let's hope uh, during the pandemic that it opens safely and it uh, continues and, and, and our business gets uh, a bit more confidence around the world. It's going to be a great summer. It's going to be a great summer. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. Such a great talk with Albert. What an amazing man. So many great achievements, not only in juggling, but in as you heard, baseball, fencing, diving, always trying to achieve the very best that he could do. Amazing. He's always been fascinated by human endeavor to prepare yourself to do the best you can. There's one story I wanted to talk about, which we didn't. And I just want to explain to you how much Albert really cares for the people dear to him and his respect for... Um, how the sports people feel. I'll tell you this story. 1984, I did the Olympics. Straight from the Olympics, I went into a show for three weeks training. After the show opened, I went uh, training back to the ice rink. And on the way, I went to the laundrette and picked up uh, all my clothes from three weeks of training in my 30 pound a week apartment. I didn't have a washing machine or anything. So I went training, left all the clothes in uh, uh, my friend's car, came out, the car was uh, stolen with all my, all my clothes. And a part, a part of all my clothes were all my Olympic sports stuff that was given to me as a, as a team member for Great Britain. So 10 years later, as you know, I shared a dressing room with Albert for uh, two years and we were talking about many things. And I told him about this. I said, yeah, all my clothes... Uh, got stolen. Um, you know, it's a shame 10 years ago, but that's it. So 10 years later, I was in uh, South Carolina in Myrtle Beach and um, Albert called me and I was uh, going to the airport to get ready to go on tour. And uh, Albert called me and said, hey, what time are you at the airport? And I said, well, I'll be there at such and such an hour. He said, oh, I'll come and say goodbye. So he met me at the airport. And he said, oh, I have a little gift uh, before you go. So what he did was, this is nearly 20 years after the event, Albert educated himself as to what clothes and what material we were given as Olympic team members. Albert then remade everything as a special gift for me. You'll see this. All of the equipment, the sweatshirts, the shoes, the bag. And Albert made this and he said, well, I know, I know it was dear to you. Albert knows a sportsman, the, the greatest reward for a sportsman is his, is his team uniform or his Olympic uh, t-shirt and stuff like that. It was totally an emotional thing. I was crying like a baby in the airport that someone not only had just taken the time to, to do something like that. I was to totally taken back. And I just wanted to share with you because Albert's like that. And uh, it was one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me, most emotional. And um, it's all about Albert. I mean, just, but that's what he does. He uh, has total respect for a sportsman and um, just all of this stuff he gave me. I'll never use any of it because it's so perfect. But uh, all of the clothes that I was given as a team member, Albert recreated, stitched, but even stitched my name on it. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't on it. But uh, 
I just want I just want everyone to know how great a man that Albert is. Not only does he achieve to the very highest level all of his endeavors, but he cares about other people. And that's just, uh, this is my way of saying thank you, Albert. Just, well, a little teary-eyed again. <laughs> <laughs>